Getting what we want does not solve all of our problems. Amen. <laughs> getting what we want does not solve all of our problems. We can get all the things we crave and still have an aching heart. You may have heard about the tragic car accident that resulted in the death of actress Anne Heche last week. Anne lived a tumultuous life. Her family moved 11 times during her childhood, even spending some time in an Amish community. Her father lived a double life. He was a choir director on the one hand, serving the church, and on the other hand, he was an undercover homosexual who abused Anne from the time she was an infant until his death from HIV AIDS when she was 13. Her older brother died three months after her father died in a car accident, potentially taking his own life. Anne moved to New York to work in television when she was only 18 years old. She was anxious to get out from under her overbearing mother. She went on to win an Emmy Award for her work in daytime television, went on to make dozens of movies and television shows. On the outside, Anne's life was a story of triumph over tragedy. A blurb for the memoir that she wrote about her life said that she was a, quote, woman who has traveled a terrifying inner landscape in search of personal fulfillment and who has emerged happy, whole, and strong, end quote. But despite all the outward success and went through relationship after relationship. She battled substance abuse and struggled with severe mental health issues. It's been reported that she had narcotics in her blood at the time of her deadly accident. Anne's tragic life ended tragically. And her children are left behind to put together the pieces. Her oldest son, Homer, said this in a statement after she was removed from life support last weekend. He says, quote, after six days of almost unbelievable emotional swings, I am left with a deep wordless sadness. Hopefully my mom is free from pain and beginning to explore what I like to imagine as her eternal freedom. Rest in peace, mom. I love you. End quote. Anne Heche achieved what our culture calls success. Fame, followers, wealth, and influence. But if you listened closely to the words of her son, the words of her son seem to suggest that she was a woman in bondage to pain. Getting what we want doesn't solve all our problems. We may get all the things that we crave and still have hearts that are aching. In our text this morning, Genesis chapter 21, we're going to see Abraham finally receive his promised son Isaac. But this great gift of Isaac doesn't negate unresolved family tension 
and Abraham's lack of land to call home. This chapter illustrates for us the already and not yet nature of the promises of God. Abraham has an heir, but he doesn't have a home. He's gotten what he wanted, but he still has problems. In Genesis 21, I invite you to begin turning there. There's Bibles in front of you if you need a Bible. Genesis chapter 21, we see Abraham's anticipation of a son become reality, but getting what he wants doesn't solve his problems. He still faces another reality, that is the reality of a competing heir, namely Ishmael, a disgruntled mistress, Hagar, and then a lack of a land to call his own. Abraham has an heir, but he doesn't, has a, he doesn't have a home. So in this text, we're going to see three things. I'm going to break this text into three pieces, three points that will help us move through the text. First, we'll see Abraham gain a son. Then we'll see Abraham lose a son. And then we'll see that Abraham is still waiting for his home. So those are our three points this morning. Number one, Abraham gains a son, verses 1 through 7. Abraham loses a son, verses 8 through 21. And then Abraham waiting for a home, verses 22 through 34. Number one, Abraham gains a son. Genesis 21, verse 1. Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That verse is a bit ironic, isn't it? Who would have said that Abraham would have uh, said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Well, God had said that. <laughs> God had said that multiple times, in fact, to both of them. So the promised heir, Isaac, is finally born. Abraham was 75 years old when God initially gives him the promise of an heir. He promises to make him a great nation, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. But now, 25 years later, he's 100 years old, the text says there in verse 5. He's 100 years old, so it's been 25 years. That's 300 months that he and Sarah tried to get pregnant only to be disappointed. 300 months. Do you ever remember what you were doing last month? 300 months they waited and waited and waited for this promised heir, only to be disappointed. In their despair, of course, they eventually resort to other means to gain an heir, such as having a child through Hagar. Terrible idea. Those human methods didn't bring about God's plan. They only created more problems, hurt more people. So then you can imagine that after 300 months of waiting, you can imagine what Sarah and Abraham felt 
And Sarah expresses it in verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Earlier she's laughing that it's ridiculous that she would have kids, that Abraham would you know, be able to have kids. Now she's laughing in joy that she has had a child. It's a different kind of laughter. Sarah's laughing with joy. Moses makes it plain here who's responsible for Sarah's joy. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. Verse 1 again, the Lord did to Sarah. So where did Isaac come from? The Lord. Where did Sarah's joy in Isaac come from? The Lord. Isaac's birth was the result, the result of God keeping his word, his promises. Verse 1 again, as he had said, as he had promised, the Lord visited, as he had said, the Lord did, as he had promised. Verse 2, at the time of which God had spoken to him. God told Abraham and Sarah exactly what he would do. For example, in chapter 18, he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then he does it exactly as he said he would do it. He visits Sarah. He, he causes Sarah to get pregnant. I almost went virgin birth there on you. That's another story. <laughs> he causes Abraham and Sarah to conceive this child at age 100 and age 90. Exactly as he said he would. Brothers and sisters, if God says He'll do something. Guess what? He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. This is going to be a bunch of examples. I'm going to fly through these as fast as I can. Examples of things God says in the Bible that He'll do. He'll be near the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. He'll repay evildoers. Romans 12, 19. He'll build His church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. He'll humble those who exalt themselves and exalt those who humble themselves. Luke 18, 14. He says that those who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly and those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Jesus says that no one that the Father gives to Him will be taken out of His hand. John 10, 29. Jesus says that everyone who believes in Him will live forever. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus says that He's the only way to God. John 14, 3. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. Jesus says that His return, His second coming, will be a global cataclysmic event that everyone will see and that those who don't believe the gospel will go to hell and those who do believe the gospel will go to heaven. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, among other texts. Jesus says that He's the living water, that He's the bread of life, John 4, 10, John 6, 35, meaning that everything else we try to eat or drink to soothe our aching souls will, will only leave us wanting, will not bring us the relief we're looking for. In other words, Jesus says that He is the place to find what we're looking for. He's the place who will satisfy our souls with His water and His bread. So if you're looking for that anywhere else, you're not going to find it, even if it feels good for a minute. When God says He'll do something, He's going to do it exactly as He says He'll do it. 
He's never lied. He's only built a track record of telling the truth and doing what he said. Friends, God can be trusted because he's trustworthy. Friends, I know that many of you, maybe you're not yet following Christ. Maybe you're still trying to decide whether you want to follow Christ, whether you should follow Christ, whether you should give your life to Him. You're struggling with whether He can be trusted. I want to ask you, I want to ask you to ask yourself, friends, why do you struggle to trust in the Lord? Has the Lord ever lied to you? Has He ever led you astray? Friends, what evidence do you have that would prove that God won't keep His word? What evidence can you bring forward that would prove that God can't be trusted with your life? When all He's ever done is tell the truth and do what He said He's going to do. Friends, if you'd like to know more about what it means to trust in the Lord, I'd encourage you to talk to the person who's sitting next to you. You're like, I don't know that person. That's okay. They're a nice person. They're nice. They're okay. Maybe talk to the person you came with. Grab me in the foyer. There are answers for your questions. We'd love to help you follow Jesus and trust in the Lord because He's trustworthy. So with Isaac's birth, Abraham's anticipation becomes reality, but Isaac's birth doesn't solve all of Abraham's problems. In fact, it creates new ones as the next section will show us. Verses 8 through 21. Abraham in this section, or excuse me, in the first section, gains a son. Now in this section, he's going to lose a son. His joy over Isaac turns into sorrow over Ishmael. So this is number two. Abraham loses a son. Instead of read the whole section, I'm going to read one verse or a couple verses at a time and talk about it as we go along. And I do want us to, to sit here in this section and ponder this section for just a bit. So verse 8. Number two, Abraham loses a son. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, that's Isaac. Isaac grew, was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So the occasion of Isaac being weaned from his mother Sarah was an occasion of celebration, but it's also, as we're going to see, an occasion for Abraham to address some family dynamics that needed to be addressed. Verse 9 says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, the son of Hagar is Ishmael. Sarah sees Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So during the party to celebrate Isaac, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. There are lots of reasons why people laugh. Sometimes we laugh because we're joking with someone. We're responding to something that was funny. Of course, that never happens when I'm preaching. Praise the Lord. <laughs> You're like, uh, do we laugh? I don't know. <laughs> But of course, sometimes we laugh, uh, we're laughing, when we laugh, we're laughing because we're mocking. We're tearing someone down with our laughter. We're elevating ourselves above another person with our laughter. 
And it seems clear from the context that that latter option is what's happening here. Ishmael and Isaac weren't joking with each other. Isaac is one, maybe two years old. Ishmael is 14 years old. See chapter 17, verse 25, which tells us he's 13, and a year later he would be 14. So 14-year-old Ishmael, who's undoubtedly been influenced by his mother Hagar, who disdains Sarah, is over on the side of this party laughing to mock Isaac. Paul confirms this for us in Galatians 4.29 when he says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. If you're reading the ESV, there's a note at the bottom that says this laughing is possibly laughing in mockery. He's laughing in mockery. He's making fun at his brother's expense. Now, if there's one thing that middle school-aged boys know how to do, it's make fun of other people. And Sarah responds in verse 10, I would argue in a kind of response that any mom would, would respond. Verse 10, so, so Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Now this seems harsh, but there's nothing fiercer than a mother's love for her children. So not only is she, not, not only is Mama Bear coming out for her son, but she also, it says there that her concern is for the promise to continue. For, verse 10, end of verse 10, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Why is she saying that? Because God has told them repeatedly that Isaac will be the heir, not Ishmael. So she's just repeating what God has already told them. She's not just being harsh to Ishmael. Her concern is for her son and for the covenant to continue with Isaac. And verse 11 says this thing was very, very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. I just kind of sat with this verse a little bit this week. Can you imagine what Abraham is feeling in this moment. The text says very displeasing. He's angry, he's frustrated, he's grieved, he's confused. Have you ever had a moment where you're like, what is going on? What just happened? Everything is spinning around. You can't seem to find a place to just get everything straight. Very displeased. He knew. Now, Abraham knew that Ishmael wasn't the son of promise. God has told him that. Chapter 17, verse 19, verse 21. But guess what? Ishmael was still his son. And no father who's worth anything wants to banish one of his children. Abraham knew that God intended to bless Ishmael, though not with the covenant, he knew he still intended to bless him, prosper him. That's chapter 17, verse 20. But these promises of blessing didn't prevent Abraham's pain. The thing very, was very displeasing to Abraham. Sarah is asking him to do the impossible. She wants it done, but Abraham, she says, Abraham, you've got to be the one who, who does it. Which is easy for her to say, right? Hey, Abraham, by the way, will you go get rid of this guy? 
And he's the head of the house. It is his responsibility. If this is to be done, he should be doing it. This verse, though, and chapter 17, verse 18, reveals Abraham's affection for Ishmael. 17, 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham hadn't written off his son. He hadn't written off his junior high son who was over in the corner mocking and laughing and making fun of this other son. He hadn't just written him off. Parents, that's instructive for us. When our kids are doing things that bring displeasure, how do we respond? How do we view them? How do we move towards or away? This thing was very displeasing to Abraham. Interestingly, nowhere in the narrative of Abraham's life, and I may have missed something, so if I've missed it, please let me know. But nowhere in the narrative of Abraham's life in these chapters 12 through about 25, 26, does Abraham speak affectionately of Sarah. But he does respond affectionately for his son. Their marriage seems to have never recovered from Abraham's self-protecting scheme initiated at the beginning of their marriage. I didn't mention this last week, so I'll mention it now. Look back at chapter 20, verse 13. He's talking to Abimelech. He's giving all these excuses for why he gave up his wife. Chapter 20, verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother, which is partly true. But can you imagine, ladies, if your husband said that to you? Hey, I'd like you to do me this kindness. Everywhere we go, just pretend not to belong to me. That'd be wonderful because I'm scared. I'm, I'm afraid that my life would be in danger if people knew that we were together husband and wife. Imagine what that does to a relationship. He's supposed to protect and serve and he's cowardly and self-protective. I wonder, I wonder if that's why Abraham fails to speak affectionately of Sarah. Married couples this morning, of course, how you end your marriage is more important than how you begin. Till death do your part in faithfulness to each other and to God. But I would also submit to you, married couples, my brothers and sisters, how you begin will shape your marriage and affect your children in profound ways. If you begin poorly, Continuing on will be hard, and ending will be difficult. So, especially if you're in the first few weeks, <clears throat> Brittany and Coleman, uh, <laughs> first, first few years, first few decades, you know, how you begin has profound, profoundly shaping effects on your marriage. In other words, there's consequences, brothers and sisters. There's consequences. The way you're interacting at the beginning starts to shape how you're going to interact for decades and then how your children are going to be raised and nurtured or not and how they're going to view you. The way you begin has profound implications. So, brothers and sisters, if you're new at this marriage thing and all of us, wherever we are, year one or year 14 or 27, we should surround ourselves with godly counselors to speak into our lives and help us and encourage us and pray for us. We should seek to walk in humility before our spouses. We should seek to walk, walk in repentance and forgiveness from the very beginning. 
so that we start to build, we start to build a house with a strong foundation. So this tangent is coming to an end. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that Abraham has deep affection for Ishmael. He has deep affection for this son who he knew wasn't the covenant son. It was very displeasing to him. He was deeply distressed until, look what happens. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God's word comes to Abraham in his distress. And God's word gives Abraham the strength he needs to do the impossible. This is instructive for us, isn't it? Something's very, something very displeasing is right in front of us. Where do we draw our strength from? How are we going to do it? We need to hear from the Lord. We need to hear from the Lord. His word will give us the strength and courage we need to do the impossible. This is the second time Hagar is cast out into the wilderness with her child, basically left to die. This happened back in chapter 16 when she was pregnant with Ishmael. But it's also, as we're about to see, the second time that the Lord intervenes and rescues her and her son. Look at verses 15 through 21, the end of this section. Verse 15, when the water and the skin, or excuse me, I skipped verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the, ver the voice of the boy where he is. Uplift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, we may struggle with what's happening here. We may wonder how Sarah could suggest this banishment, how Abraham could do it, how God could authorize it. We may wonder if this calls God's character into question. Is Hagar and Ishmael's expulsion from Abraham's camp wrong, you may think? Well, let me first encourage you to think that uh, we need to remember it was Abraham and Sarah's actions back in chapter 16 that created the context for this mess. Remember Sarah comes to Abraham. They're not getting pregnant. It's been many, many years. And she's like, hey, why don't you go ahead and go sleep with another woman and that will be our son. That will be our offspring. He'll be the heir. And Abraham does it. And it creates all this conflict. And then they banish Hagar out to the wilderness while she's pregnant. So they're piling up sin. And here's more mess. Here's, here's some of the results of the mess that they 
they made back in chapter 16. You may have seen the sign that says everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. Amen? Amen. God often gets blamed for the results of bad decisions that we make. But think about it. If the Lord is to protect Isaac, he needs to protect him at least initially from Hagar and Ishmael. Had they been allowed to stay in Abraham's camp, they may, there may have been another Cain and Abel situation. There may have been another Rebecca lying to her husband and Jacob and Esau situation where the, the brothers wanted to kill each other. Who knows what would have happened to Isaac if Ishmael was allowed to stay around with his scheming mother, Hagar. God had already made it clear to them that the covenant promises are going to go through Isaac. So the point of this story, and the story of Lot, by the way, that we did in chapter 19, is that all the contenders for that position must be eliminated and the promised child preserved. Lot's not going to be the promised one. Ishmael's not going to be the promised one. It must be, it will be Isaac. Now, don't get me wrong. The text says emphatically here and in chapter 16 and in chapter 17 that God has good plans for Hagar and Ishmael. He doesn't just leave them in the desert to die. Ishmael in particular seems to have received favor from the Lord. Notice verse 16 and Austin pointed this out to me in a text this week. Thank you, brother. Verse 16 says, the end of verse 16, she sat opposite him. She, that's Hagar sitting opposite Ishmael. She lifted up her voice and wept. Then look at the very, verse, very first part of verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. So 16 says it's Hagar weeping and her voice is lifted up. And then 17 it says God hears who? The boy. The boy. End of verse 17. Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Verse 20, and God was with the boy. God was with the boy. Ishmael may have been cast aside by his family, but he wasn't cast aside by his maker. God intended to bless him, to preserve his life, and to bless him and to make him into many nations, as we'll see in a few more chapters. So both of Abraham's sons would be blessed. Ishmael and Isaac, but only one of his sons would inherit the covenant blessing of Abraham. And that would be Isaac. As I've considered the narrative of Hagar and Ishmael back when we did chapter 16 and then more this week, I've wondered why this part of the story is in the Bible. Why did God see fit that Moses preserve this part of the narrative for all of posterity? Why, in other words, the narrative of Hagar and Ishmael, it could have been left out and the story continues. God calls Abraham. He blesses Abraham. He gives Abraham and Sarah a son. Eventually, the story goes on. Why is Ishmael and Hagar in the story? Well, the New Testament helps us answer that, as we'll see in a moment. But Genesis, even here, the Genesis text provides us with some clues. Notice just listen with me. I'm not going to be able to look at all these texts with you, but there are some verbal connections between chapters 21 and then chapter 22 that we'll do next week. So in both chapters, 21 and 22, both Hagar and Abraham rise early in the morning. 
the angel of God or the angel of the Lord shows up in 21 and shows up in 22. There's fear in 21 and 22. There's the promise of offspring in 21 and 22. Hagar sees the well of water in 21. Abraham sees the ram caught in a thicket in 22. What's happening here? Why are there these parallels, these grammatical parallels between 21 and 22? I think Moses, the narrator, is painting Ishmael and Isaac in very similar terms, almost as if they're the same people, even portraying him as the son of laughter back in verse 9. Who's laughing? Ishmael. Ishmael's the one laughing. And we've already seen that God has promised to bless Ishmael, to make him to a great nation. So the, the first readers of this text, the first hearers, the nation of Israel, as they're listening to this text, and as maybe as you're reading this text for the first time, you might be led to think that perhaps Ishmael is the child of promise. Maybe Isaac is next week. Maybe Isaac is about to get killed by his dad on this mountain. Maybe he is the child. Maybe Ishmael is the child of promise. But this is where the Apostle Paul comes in. He points out in Galatians 4, as Chandler read earlier, that one boy, one boy is born of the Spirit. And another boy is born of the flesh. This is Paul's whole interpretive grid for what he says there in Galatians 4 and Romans 9. Not all who are descended ethnically, physically from Abraham are Abraham's true spiritual heirs. To inherit the promise of Abraham, you must be like Isaac and be born of the Spirit, not like Ishmael and be born of the flesh. So here's here's why this is so important. Here's why I think it's in the Bible. The pastoral point Paul's making in Romans 9 Galatians 4 is that God's people are saved by grace, not by works or by their ethnicity. This is in the Bible to teach us a very valuable foundational lesson, brothers and sisters. Your salvation is the result of God's grace and grace alone. We just sang this. We're a child of God by what? Grace and grace alone. It doesn't say grace and grace plus works, grace and grace, plus church attendance, grace and grace, plus a college degree, grace and grace, plus my grandma was a Christian, my mom's a Christian, I was born a Christian. You know, none of that. Grace alone, period. Why are you a Christian? Grace. It's not your ethnicity. Not everyone born to Abraham is part of Abraham's, is part of Abraham's promise. There's covenant. In fact, the analogy, I'm not going to get into the Galatians 4 text too much, but Paul even draws a distinction between the law and the gospel. Those, those who are assuming that they can work their way into God's favor are in bondage. He calls them slaves. You're a slave, dear friends. If you're trying to work your way into God's favor, you're a slave. and You may not even know it, but you're free if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. You're free. You're part of God's free, heavenly people. You're part of His new nation. The offspring of Abraham. Those who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Only those who trust in God's free grace are free. Those who think they can work or earn or pray or perform or be born into God's family are slaves. Only those who are chosen by God's free mercy, not based on anything they've done, are God's people. So yes, this this painful part of Abraham's story 
is the result of his own poor choices, no doubt about it. But God is always sovereignly working in and behind and through our stupidity to accomplish his purposes. Amen. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> the story of Ishmael and Isaac is meant to teach us that the only way people living in a cursed world in bondage to sin, bondage to death, can be brought into the family of God is by God's free grace. Abraham and Sarah's scheming doesn't work, and friends, neither will yours. It's not going to work. The only way to inherit the blessing of God is to trust in the promises of God. Abraham was counted righteous because he believed the Lord. And anyone today here who believes the Lord, who believes His word about His holiness, our sinfulness, Jesus' free forgiveness purchased on the cross will also be counted righteous and be heirs of the promises of God. There are reasons why obscure passages are in the Bible. God has much to teach us about Himself and how we know Him through Ishmael and Hagar in this whole mess that Sarah and Abraham made. Abraham has received the long-awaited prize of the promised heir, Isaac. But as I've been saying, this doesn't solve all his problems. There's relational tension. There's heartbreak. He has to disown, banish, remove his very own son. And this next section, speaking of obscure passages in the Bible, this next section shows us something very important Namely, that Abraham also doesn't have any land. So number three, Abraham is still waiting for a home. Verses 22 through 34, waiting for a home. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me. So you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You do not tell me. I have not heard of it, heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistine. Do you see that textual reminder of what Abraham is there in verse 34? What is Abraham? He's a sojourner. He's a sojourner. He doesn't live here in the land of Gerar, this land of the Philistines. He's a sojourner. He's, he's, a, he's a man passing through. We need to interpret this story in light of the bigger story of Genesis. God, you might remember, placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After they sinned, they were driven from that land of life, 
Then God starts to make things new and right again by calling Abraham, promising him three things. He promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. In chapter 21, he has two out of the three. Finally, he has the promised seed, Isaac, who's been born. He's clearly blessed, as we've seen. He's got, he's got men, he's got servants, he's got wealth. Even here in chapter 21, verse 22, Abimelech says, God is with you in all that you do. He's blessed. He's a blessed man. He has offspring. But he still has no land. He still has no land. He's a sojourner. He's a stranger wherever he goes, as seen in this dispute between him and Abimelech about the well. If Abraham, you see, if Abraham, I'm not getting into the details of this text. If you want to talk details on this, see me afterwards. The big point here is that if Abraham owned this land, <clears throat> there would have been no dispute. The narrator, Moses, is trying to tell us that he has the promised son. But oh, by the way, lest we forget, he doesn't have a home. If Abraham owned the land, there wouldn't be a dispute. He's still waiting on that aspect of God's promise to be fulfilled. He has an heir, but he doesn't have a home. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this theme, this theme of Abram's, Abraham's homelessness, if you will. I'm going to read some verses for you. You can turn there if you want. Hebrews 11. These are so wonderful, so beautiful. They apply so immediately to our lives. So let's look in closing at how the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this theme of Abraham's homelessness. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an, as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, having in, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, landless Abraham lived his life, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. His faith, this faith he had in another land, another city, is why God says there in verse 16 that he's not ashamed to be his God, for he's prepared for him a city. In other words, brothers and sisters, we need to reckon with which land we're living for, which land we're passionate about. I'm grateful to live in this country and in this city. 
I was mowing my yard yesterday, thanking God for my house. Do you ever thank God for where you live? You should do that. But we should also have our eyes set on another land. Why? Because this is not our home. We're passing through. You're born, you live, then you die. Then you stand before God who judges you. And if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith in Him and faith in Him alone, you get to live in a brand new land, a heavenly Jerusalem, a city that has foundations that are unshakable, where there's endless joy and delight and righteousness and truth and peace and fellowship and community, and all the things you long for. So stop putting your hope in this country or any country. Stop putting your hope in your family or your progeny or whatever, your degrees, your education, your job, your wealth, your retirement. Those things aren't bad. Don't hear me saying all those things are bad, but those things aren't what define who we are. They didn't define Abraham. It shouldn't define us. He, like us, lived in the tension of the already and the not yet nature of the promises of God. Abraham received an heir, but he didn't have a home. Getting what he wanted didn't solve all his problems. He had to learn, as do we, that God's righteous ones must suffer while we wait for the land. And of course, we're reminded of the righteous one who suffered to purchase for us a new land. Christ himself, the righteous one. The only one in history who ever suffered unjustly. And he did it with joy, with gladness, going to the cross for sins he didn't commit, crimes he never did thoughts he never thought, actions he never did. He goes to the cross, purchases salvation for us, for everyone who will believe on his name. He teaches us that the cross comes before the crown, that suffering comes before glory. You see, friends, the promises of God aren't fulfilled for us all at once. As I reflected on this sermon, I was reading even this morning, I was like, what am I trying to say with this sermon? (laughs) You're like, I know, that's kind of what I was thinking too. Here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to say. Here, here's what I want you to take away with, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to normalize suffering for us. I'm trying to normalize the idea that this life will be marked with pain, affliction, conflict, unfulfilled desires, relational strife. We have an heir, but we don't have a home. Right? I'm trying to help you understand that the things that you're facing in life aren't because God is angry at you. We're we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're not there yet, are we? Brothers and sisters, though, here's the good news. Have you ever thought about this? We're one day closer to heaven. We're closer today than we were yesterday. Amen. Amen. Our hearts may be aching, and I know many of your hearts are aching. My heart is aching. But we're one day closer to that land that flows with milk and honey. Right now, we have to be sojourners in this land. But brothers and sisters, we're almost home. We're almost home. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your words and write them on our hearts. Please help us to consider carefully how these things apply to us. Please increase our faith.
Please help us to persevere. Please help us to be at peace with the reality that getting the things we want want doesn't solve all our problems. That we can have all that we crave and still have an aching heart. And in that, I pray that we would find Christ to be an all-sufficient and all-satisfying Savior. That we would continually, day after day, moment after moment, keep looking to Christ, to His city, His land, our home. Help us to stay close to You, Lord. Help us to not give up. Help us to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. Knowing that your righteous ones must suffer while we wait on the full accomplishment of your promises. We ask for your help in this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.